namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sangam Namasami The first precept not to kill any living being is very important not just because it's on the front of the line. It's about killing life. But we kill our life in so many other ways by not understanding what we're doing. And one of the ways is that we kill trust. And trust is the opposite of fear. And we kill our trust all the time because our minds go towards the world and towards objects as if they are true and as if they will make us happy. And so we trust the wrong things. And we become so afraid to lose what we're trying to get because we trust it. We're so afraid of losing it. And then because of that fear, we're not trusting in the right way. And we're so caught up with getting instead of letting go. We're caught up in these opposite winds and movements which kill us. Fear is a killer. Ultimately, we're so afraid of suffering. Suffering is the bottom line. The Buddha spelled it out, it's suffering. Because we are, we're on a road to lose everything. Even if we live to be a hundred, we still die. And in the middle, then, between that and a hundred, everybody else will die. But if we could trust the right way, then we would not kill ourselves with this fear of losing our best friend or our health or our beauty, our strength, our knowledge. People study for decades to get degrees and to know so many things. But then you go to a nursing home and you see so many people that have these wonderful lives and they're sitting unaware, disabled, abandoned, unloved, unable to do anything, and frightened or lonely, or happy a little bit when it's lunchtime, or there's some activity. But why is it like this? What have we done to head in that direction? We think we're not, but we are. It's inevitable, and it's not something that we should be sad about, except for the fact that we're still to the very last shred of hope of getting something from the world, we're going to try for it. But if we can learn to trust in the right way, then our life will be fulfilled. And we won't have to fear, because we will have understood the truth of what we are, what our life is for. So 
I think this killing of trust is, for me, that's, that's the most obvious. Because killing, we don't kill creatures as much as possible. We take this precept. And we watch a lot of people die. A lot of creatures die. A lot of insects die. All the insects that were here for the spring, summer, and fall are gone. So death is all around us. All the trees have lost their leaves. The birds flew away, but many of them die. There's so much death. And death, instead of being frightening, is a tremendous teacher to us. So maybe it's better to start on a softer note than a... (laughs) (laughs) Just all about death. But it's actually about waking up. Because all I hope is that, I hope that before these eyes close forever, I will have completed the journey of waking up. I mean, we don't want to die asleep. I don't mean in your sleep. I mean asleep to the truth. I mean not understanding the impermanence and the suffering and the emptiness, the vacuity of it all. We're just taking refuge in ways that don't support fearlessness, that make us afraid of losing or afraid of not getting what we need to get. Do you notice how much the world is driven by these advertisements or these situations where you're being conned into getting things? The latest device that you absolutely need, even the latest security for that device. But then it doesn't give you security because the people that are to be feared are busy creating new ways of getting your information. This is civilization. It doesn't feel very civil. It feels just full of fear, hatred, and greed and delusion. So much ignorance behind all that. So the Buddha, bless his heart, the Buddha, what he was able to do in his lifetime, even across millennia, no device, no no contraption, just his voice, his understanding, his knowledge, his bright mind, like a sun radiating in all directions and reaching generation upon generation upon generation of beings who could hear what to take refuge in, how to take refuge, how to find shelter, how to be fearless. And some of you, young beings, young in terms of, we're not a thousand years old, but we may have been around many times. (laughs) We don't know how many times we've shaved our heads and tried. To be able to learn how to practice, how to walk the middle way, how to understand suffering, how to know what to trust, this is really important for us to do. It's very inspiring when more people come to do that, to take that on. And when all of you, in your busy lives, trying to stay on top of your payments, just to stay alive, and looking after your loved ones and each other, 
it's very inspiring that you keep the practice close to your hearts. And on one of your days off, you come to chant and sit together in the silence of this beautiful sanctuary. While we were sitting, I was, I was thinking about this wonderful building that we received and how sacred it is and how many times people have come to sit here and added this pure energy into this space. So this is the kind of a space where fear can end. But what if somebody drove up and rushed in with a rifle and started shooting? Wouldn't we be terrified? It would be a terrible thing. I would try to emulate my teacher. I don't know if I can do it. But I, I keep preparing myself because that happened to him. And he said to the man, you poor man, you're going to go to jail. That's what he said. So I wonder, could I have compassion for this being? Could I not kill him with my mind? I wish you would die first. The, the mind, to keep the mind pure, especially when you're about to die, that is the most urgent moment right then, is to let the mind go to purity and not to fear and not to hatred and not to clinging anymore because our time has come. We're very blessed. We live in a country where at the moment there aren't bombs being dropped on us. We have comfortable places to live and I'm pretty sure everyone here has enough food and we receive so much kindness. So the Buddha's instruction to us is to purify the mind. And purifying the mind means that we take these precepts, we keep them, we keep the Dhamma close to our hearts and develop the path. But to do that, we have to let go. We have to let go of our poor habits of mind. And the poor habits of mind train us poorly to cling to the things of the world or to the body and intelligence, beauty, certain attributes that give us power and control over our life or over money or over people. If you're a manager or at work, you know what it's like to be managed. It's not very nice. We need to manage our minds and not be managed. But the fact is that the way the world works is that our minds are managed by information and by other beings making up this information. But here in the monastery, we try more and more to manage our minds in the direction of hearing the Dhamma, whatever we're doing. To always be listening to the voice of the Dhamma. And it's a training. It takes a whole lifetime and maybe more. It isn't just magic. Well, I'll just get into robes and sit up straight and count my hours, do 4,000 or 400,000 meditation hours, and then 
I will be enlightened. <laughs> Fallacy. There's no one to get enlightened. And if we approach it like that, then we're just not trusting the right thing in the right way. It's, it's not like that. It's about waking up to the Dhamma within us and by letting go of clinging, not clinging to anything, even to be a, being, being a good meditator because that's identification. And there's still this being, this person, that's the root of the whole problem. And people call that selfish. It's only selfish if we do it in the wrong way. But there is a selfless way of doing this work. A selfless way is that it's not a me or a being or anyone to be enlightened, but it's purifying this awareness, this consciousness, this ability to see and know what is trustworthy, what we can trust. And that Dhamma is what we trust, that truth. And we learn how to trust it by learning about the truth of our own existence, that we're just, we're like the plants, really. We're just a bunch of trees. We're just a bunch of caterpillars <laughs> turning into monarch butterflies. <laughs> and then we fly away. But this ability to practice awareness, the pure knowing of Dhamma, that we want to perfect, that we want to light, bring it to light in the mind. And to do that we have to vacate. There is no vacation except that. It's to vacate all the dross, all the lies, all the misguided information and ways of holding the world that give us this sense of who we are, when actually we're nothing. We're just heaps of elements strung together. You could say like pearls on a necklace, but it isn't that beautiful. Anything that this body comes into contact with becomes dirty. You know, look, your beautiful clothes, they hang in the shop, you put them on, you feel so great, but after a few days they stink. <laughs> And you definitely don't want to wear them anymore. And we use deodorants and shampoos, and we were staying in the house of some friends yesterday evening. And I was interested at the whole collection of soaps and shampoos and things to make the body smell nice. Because it is bound for decay and death. If you ever dust your house, you find so many pieces of your skin everywhere, or your clothing. That's how much we're falling apart all the time. But we don't see that because we're so busy dressing it up and pretending that it isn't what it is. So we have to stop pretending and take it for what it is and not trust it so much. Little by little, we learn how not to trust that and how to trust the truth that is growing within us and is like a mirror into which we can see the reflection. We see the reflection of Dhamma within us as we purify the mind. And the body can never, ever reflect 
the Dhamma. As beautiful, as young, as glorious as it may feel, it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing to hang a being on. But we appreciate it. It's not to do what the monks did at the time of the Buddha when he talked about that the body is just the five heaps and it's just the source of suffering, the origin of... He talked about the Four Noble Truths and then when he came back from a journey, a lot of the monks had committed suicide because they thought this body is just such a problem. They didn't understand, well, take care of it and get enlightened. They took it very literally. So then he started to teach in a different way so that people don't kill themselves, not to kill, but to trust and to take care of the raft. The body is like the jet plane to Nibbana. We want to go to Nibbana. It's just a metaphor. There was a beautiful Sayadaw, a Burmese teacher that I was lucky enough to study with years ago, and he said to me, do you want to take the jet plane to Nibbana? (laughs) And I said, yes. (laughs) So he taught me how to do this sound of silence meditation, hearing, consciousness. With the hearing, it's so direct. The ears, they're like two satellite dishes, like two radar. So you can just focus on the sound of silence, which is always audible. That's the sound of nothing is a sound. There's a sound. If you stop to listen, you'll, you'll be able to hear this. And I was so grateful to him. But one shouldn't focus on any technique, really. That this is the way. Some people like certain ways of practice better than others, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like if you like to go by train instead of by bus. But the vehicle needs to be taken care of. That's the point. And there is a way of learning to focus our attention so that the mind is not riveted to worldly forms, visuals, hearing beautiful sounds, smells, tastes, touch sensations, getting beautiful experiences from the world all the time, but that we learn to look and trust within for the most beautiful experience that we could possibly have, and that's the ending of all experience. To know that there's something in that where there is no more seeking for anything, because we wake up to the Dhamma, And just everything is as it should be. The truth arises within us like a light that goes throughout the universe, unimpeded. But the mind, the mind must be clean, it must be pure to receive that waking up, to know it, to protect it, to cultivate it. Do you have any questions? Yeah, uh, you mentioned letting go, and I just wanted to ask how that concept of letting go 
collapse onto the duties of the truths? Specifically, would it fall into the category of abandoning suffering? Well, you're thinking a lot. <laughs> There's lots of words in there. It's just let it go. Let ego go. Let it be. Just listen. You know the concepts of truths and duties and abandoning and how to let go. It's a lot of thinking. But just see how suffering arises in your heart and how desperately you want to know the answer. But it isn't by rifling through shelves and shelves of concepts that an answer will come, but it's just by letting the mind become so quiet that there isn't a single concept arising in there, not a one. Ask a follow-up question. <laughs> I might give you the same answer. I was telling yesterday about when I first met my teacher in India, Baba, and I came to him full of questions, and he just laughed. Then he said, do you have a question? But he knew my mind was blank. I couldn't think of anything, and it was the best thing. I just appreciated his being, his emptiness. There was no one there. It was just peace, just the quietness, the silence, the joy, the brilliant light of his presence was, it was love, pure as it could get. I didn't have to be anybody or do anything or ask anything or achieve anything. Just pure love, unconditional. Just love as, as I was, it didn't matter. And I bowed. I felt so humble. I just fell on my knees. So asking questions, give up the questions and let your life live into the answers one day. I just quoted real okay. The drawer doesn't open very fast in the mind, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. I got helpers. Sadhu <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>